Well, some of you know that uh, when I was in my early 20s, I spent some time in the former Soviet Union. I... Uh, I went a couple of different trips there and then ended up living uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia for a little bit over a year. It was a transformational time for me. I, I served as a missionary and tried to help start ministries on different college campuses um, that, uh, that shared the gospel with people, that gave people an opportunity to meet Jesus and experience Jesus and come to know him. I think one of the most challenging parts of living in St. Petersburg was the winter. It's uh, St. Petersburg is really far north. It's uh, the equivalent of, uh, I mean, kind of mid southern to mid Alaska and so it's cold in the winter it's bitterly cold uh, it's a couple hundred miles from the Arctic Circle and so the sun sets sometime in December and doesn't really come up again for quite a while and so it's I mean it, you see people getting off the subway or whatever else and they're all like downcast and dragging and whatever and if you'd ask somebody what it's about they'd be like hey it's winter right I mean everybody's depressed in winter here and so uh, I mean after after about six weeks of this I was like enough I can't stand this. And so I and a couple of my friends decided we would hop a train and head south. <laughs> and so it was relatively cheap to travel in Russia at that time. And so we hopped on a train. It was maybe a 16 or 18 hours, an overnight train, train ride to Moscow. And so we uh, went, we called a friend and we stayed with, with a friend there. So we had free lodging. We thought we're just going to go kind of enjoy ourselves, be, do the touristy thing for a couple of days. And, uh, and so we did what, you know, what any uh, self-respecting American would do. Uh, we, uh, we queued up right away in the line and went to Pizza Hut. <laughs> in Moscow. It was the only pizza within like 800 miles at that time or something like that. And we had been living on borscht, right? And and uh, crackers and cheese and kielbasa and all this stuff. And, uh, and we were ready for some full-on American food. So we went to McDonald's. We went to Pizza Hut. We did all that kind of stuff. Had our fill of grease gut as much as you can stand within a couple of day period of time. But I remember we went to this Pizza Hut and it was not far from Red Square. It wasn't too far from the crack in that in that day and uh and so when we got done eating, we had this huge meal. We consumed all kinds of pizza. We, we get done. We're kind of just walking around the city, and we start walking towards the Kremlin when all of a sudden we start seeing police cars pull up, and they are blocking off every street except the main thoroughfare through there. And we're like, what in the world is going on? Soon there's men with machine guns <laughs> standing on, at every intersection, and we're like, oh, my gosh. I mean, something, something big is happening here. And pretty soon we see this... Um, this motorcade goes screaming through the streets at probably 50 miles an hour. It starts out with black SUVs, and pretty soon there's like four or five limousines that are just going by, like I said, 50 miles an hour in the, in, in the middle of down, downtown Moscow. And then I start noticing there's little American flags on the corners, the corners of the limousines. What are we seeing? It's the president, right? All of a sudden, it starts dawning on me. It starts dawning on us, like, of what we're seeing. We're like, the president of the United States is visiting Russia. And we're like, this is so cool. So we stand there, and we kind of watch them go by, and we kind of uh, travel their route a little bit. Then we're anxious to get back to our... Uh, to where we're staying because we want to turn on the news just to verify like was it the president was the vice president secretary stay who was this and uh, sure enough we go back and all the the russian news stations uh, the american news stations are all covering it the president of the u.s has come to russia and the two sort of superpowers are meeting together uh for discussions and politics and all that kind of stuff it was huge news it was big news in that day because the president of the free world had come to visit russia everybody buzzed about it there was all kinds of talk about it. Well, today, as I mentioned earlier, kind of marks the beginning of what we call Holy Week. It's the week leading up to Easter. 
And this week, more than a billion people around the world will celebrate and worship the King Jesus, the King who came from heaven to earth to live, to die, and to rise again for our forgiveness and our salvation, and to open up a way for us to come back home to God. It's the biggest news ever. It's way bigger than the the president going to Russia. It's way bigger than any peace deal you can imagine. It's the time the King came for us. We're on week number six of a series we're doing here at Ignite called Encountering Jesus. And for these six weeks leading up to Easter, we've been walking through the biblical book of Luke, right? The gospel of Luke. It's a story that's all about the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection and then even the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. Each week of the series, we've been looking at a particular aspect of who Jesus is. We've been talking about Jesus, the teacher, right? We've talked a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus, the healer and the miracle worker. We've talked about Jesus, the the missionary, Jesus, the prophet, uh, all these kinds of things. On Friday, we're going to wrap up the series at our Good Friday service and talk about Jesus, the savior of the world, Jesus, the lamb of God. And that's going to be an amazing uh, and powerful time. But, uh, Today on Palm Sunday, I want us to kind of back up and look at, uh, we're going to read it right from the, the original Palm Sunday story, but I want us to look at and think about Jesus, the King. Before we dig in uh, to the passage for the day, I want to give you a little bit of background. Anytime you, you read a passage from Scripture, if you want to understand what it really says, it's important to pay attention to the context, right? The context. The stuff that's written right before it, the stuff that's written right after it. What, it, what is the author talking about? What is it that they're trying to communicate to you? And in this particular story, it's fascinating in Luke because uh, because. Luke is re- retelling a story about Jesus' interaction with some people, and uh, he ends up telling a story to them, uh, and it's a story about a prince that would become a king. And this, this prince goes al- away on a long journey and leaves his servants in charge of his possessions. Two of these servants uh, go immediately and put his possessions to work and gain even more. One of them uh, doesn't. When he returns as the king, when this, this prince goes to a foreign, you know, far off country, he becomes king and he returns. When he returns, he great, greatly rewards the two servants that were faithful, but he judges the one who wasn't. And the story ends, and this is fascinating, with the king saying that those who did not want him to be their king will suffer great loss. And then with that, it leads into the story of Palm Sunday, of the story of Jesus, the king, coming into Jerusalem. And so I want you to, with that picture in mind, I want to read through and kind of walk through the story. It's in Luke 19. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. If, you, if, if not, you can use the Ignite Church app. You can follow along on the screens, whatever. Luke 19, starting with verse 28, says this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those that were sent ahead uh, went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
Let me just stop there for just a second and give you a little bit of a snapshot of kind of what's happening here because it's a little foreign to us uh, in our culture, but let me just, it would have been a fairly common picture in Jesus' day. Fairly normal. It would have been fairly normal to see a king, for instance, in that day, coming into town, riding on a great stallion, a white horse, maybe, returning from war in victory. In 2 Kings 9, for instance, we read about uh, people putting their cloaks down on the road before a newly anointed king who rode in on a horse. Everything about the story, as we'll see, including the words that get spoken, everything about it is painting a picture of King Jesus, but it's also painting a picture of the kind of king that he's going to be. It's a story about Jesus as king, but it's clear that it's not a normal kingship kind of story because instead of Jesus riding in on a great steed, Jesus approaches Jerusalem, we learn, on the cult of a donkey. <laughs> Listen to this. It's a, it comes actually from a quote from Zechariah, and the other gospels make it even more clear that this is the, the, the foal of a donkey. But Zechariah 9.9 is describing this scene written 500 years before this happens, by the way. Crazy. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughters of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, but also lowly, as in humble, and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What kind of king rides into town on a borrowed foal of a donkey? This imagery is giving us a picture of sort of the humility of Jesus, a a, a king who's coming, yes, but not necessarily in pomp and circumstance. He is coming to serve, a king that came maybe to bring peace, a king that the Old Testament refers to as the suffering servant. This is no ordinary king. This isn't a king riding in on his great white horse to, to show how great he is, but this is a king coming in humility, a king coming to serve and to love and to eventually give his life for us. What kind of king rides into town on the foal of a donkey? Well, I ran across a great quote, some great uh, perspective from an author named Philip Yancey, where he writes about this triumphal entry, quote, quote, this, this Jesus coming into Jerusalem on this donkey. And this is what he says. This is the quote. It says, the triumphal entry has about it an aura of ambivalence. And as I read all the accounts together, what stands out to me is the slapstick nature of the affair. I mean, imagine a Roman officer galloping in to check on this disturbance, all these people that are gathered together. He's attended processions in Rome like this where they do these things right. The conquering general would sit in his chariot of gold with stallions straining at the reins, with wheel spikes flashing in the sunlight. Behind him, officers in polished armor display the banners captured from vanquished armies. At the rear came a ragtag procession of slaves and prisoners in chains, living proof of what happens to those who defy Rome. But now, he says, imagine this, Jesus' triumphal entry. In Jesus' triumphal entry, the adorning crowd is actually those that make up the ragtag procession. The lame, the blind, children, peasants from Galilee to Bethany. When the officer looks for the object of their attention, he spies a forlorn figure weeping, riding on no stallion and no chariot, but on the back of a baby donkey. A borrowed coat is draped across its backbone, serving as its saddle. He says, well, there's a whiff of triumph on on Palm Sunday, but not the kind of triumph that would have impressed Rome and not that would have uh, impressed the crowds in Jerusalem for long either. 
he ends by asking the, the rhetorical question, what manner of king is this? What kind of king is this? Well, let me tell you, friends, this is a king who comes into Jerusalem in humility. A king that comes into Jerusalem to serve. A king who comes into Jerusalem to die. It was crazy. I think I mentioned it in the, uh, in the uh, devotional that we wrote. But, uh, but actually, this has been, uh, I'm trying to think. I think it's chapter 9, verse 51 in Luke. From Luke 9, 51 onward, we start reading about how Jesus has turned his attention to Jerusalem. It says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem, another translation says. He has been heading there for 10 chapters. Luke's making, making a, a statement by virtually every chapter. It says, on his way to Jerusalem, this happened. On his way to Jerusalem, and you kind of get this picture that Jesus, that, that this story is going somewhere. Right? It's the, the climax of the story is going to be what happens as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, right? Because that's, that's as we know, the end of the story, right? That's where he's going to come and he's going to die and pay the price for the sins of the people. It's where he's going to purchase freedom for the captives. It's where he's going to bring eternal healing for the souls of those who trust in him. This is where all the good stuff is going to happen in, is in Jerusalem, his death and his resurrection. It's the focal point of the book of Luke. He's been heading there for 10 chapters. And now we kind of get we get to the climax of the story. Jesus has arrived. He's coming into Jerusalem and the people are starting to celebrate and he's getting the welcome of a king even in his story, right? You, you know, they're we're going to see in just a second. They're going to be crying out. They're going to be calling. They're going to be I mean waving palm branches. They're going to be doing the whole shebang saying, "This is our king. This is the king that has come." And yet we keep seeing hints and hints and hints all the way throughout woven throughout. That yes, he's the king, but he's not the king they expected. He's, he's not the kind of king they were even hoping for, but he was the kind of king that they needed. Let's go on. Verse 37 says this. It says, when uh, he, Jesus, came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. The people are quoting from Psalm 118, Hosanna, it doesn't say, but that's, that's where they're quoting from. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a way that the people are saying, we believe that you are the king. We believe that you're the one that's coming to save us, and he is. But not in the way they think. Not a military king, not a political king, but a king that has come to save souls, that has come to transform eternities. Let's go on, verse 39. So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come... Uh, Upon you, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, they will dash you to the ground, and and uh, you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming among you. Listen to that last part again, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. 
such a fascinating and sort of ironic picture the whole way through this this section. I mean, here you've got Jesus, the king of the universe, right? The creator, the one who spoke the world into existence. He rides into town not on a great white horse, but on the back of a baby donkey. You got the king of kings that rides in not as the great kings of the earth do, but he rides in in humility. He doesn't come come this time with sword and army to be the conquering king, but he comes at this point to bring peace at the expense of his own life. You've even got this image of people in the crowd praising God and the religious leader shutting them up. Isn't that ironic? I mean, you kind of read through this and you think, what in the world is going on here? Then towards the end of it, you've got a picture of Jesus warning the people of what happens of, of, the, of the justice that is coming. And you see in him this desire and this sadness about it and this desire for people instead to turn to him and find mercy. There's just all kinds of irony that's happening in here. But the thing that I think struck me most this week as I was kind of studying and reading through this passage is that after the crowd did this whole Hosanna thing and they, they, they were crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. After they're, after they're laying their cloaks down before him, after they're saying in word and deed, they're saying, we believe you're the king that has come. We believe you're the one that's here to save us. After all of the hubbub, Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he looks over the crowd and he begins to weep for them. He begins to cry for them. In fact, the word the, the, that's translated weep there could actually means to sob like it, like you would if you were at the funeral of a loved one just gut-wrenching he's bawling over the crowd he's bawling over Jerusalem weeping for the people and he goes on again to talk about the damage and the, the destruction that will come into people's lives because he says because you did not recognize the time when God's came to you and uh, another translation says because you didn't recognize the time that God came to save you it's so weird so you've got this crowd that's crying out we believe you're the king we believe you know you're the one that has come to save us you're the messiah you're the savior kind of thing and you've got a picture then of Jesus weeping saying yeah but I don't think you get it a, a picture of Jesus weeping saying you know what I, I, I think you've missed me so many of you anyway, have missed the time when God came among you. I mean, there are lots of people have speculated about this and written about it, but it is ironic. I mean, there's, a, there's the mob that's going along, and today they're praising God, and they're, they're, they're saying, we believe, right? And on Friday, probably many of the same people will be in the crowd, and they will be shouting something else, won't they? What will they be shouting? Crucify him crucify him they'll be spitting on him they'll be yelling they'll be turning their backs they'll be cheering on his execution it makes you wonder you think they think they really got it think they really understood on palm sunday who jesus was no when they were cheering on palm sunday you're the king and you're the prophet and you're the messiah the one who will save us you know what i think they were cheering for I think they were cheering for the God that they wanted him to be. They were cheering and they were, they were delighting and they were saying these things to, to the king that they wanted him to be rather than the king that he really was. The crowd, you see, had been waiting for and looking for and wanting a military king, 
A king that would come and would destroy and wipe out their enemies. A king that would defeat Rome. A king that would give Israel back to the people. That's who they wanted, a warrior, a general, a king like that. But Jesus didn't come to be a king like that. He didn't come to bring death to the Romans, but he came to bring life to them and to everyone. He didn't come to establish another human government, but instead to open wide the doors of his kingdom. He didn't come to topple an army, but to overthrow and destroy the power and the consequences of sin once and for all. He didn't come to bring war, but peace. He didn't come to bring death, but life. He didn't come to do their will. In fact, he didn't even come to do his own will, but the Bible makes it abundantly clear that this king came to do the will of his father in heaven. And therefore, as Philippians 2 describes it, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's king, right? This is the true Messiah. This is who this king really is, the one who came to save. He's the true hero to the human story and the human dilemma, the one who brought life through his death, the one who brought freedom to all of mankind, the one who truly is king and Lord over all. He's the one who is all wisdom and all knowledge and all powerful and all just and entirely loving and merciful. This is King Jesus, the King Jesus that really is. As it turns out, the crowd wasn't really that crazy about that kind of Jesus. They wanted him to do their will. They wanted a human king. They wanted a a king that would make life easy for them again. They wanted sort of the genie in a lamp version of Jesus. Just rub, rub the lamp and he'll do whatever you want him to do. Poof, what do you need, right? Kind of thing. But that's not who he is. They gave Jesus a hero's welcome, complete with palm branches and yelling and the whole shebang, but they still didn't know who he was. They still missed Jesus. You know, the truth be told, I wonder how often that's true of you and me. You know, like I wonder how often it is that we're desiring Jesus just to do what we want him to do. We desire life with God to be just what we want to do, just with a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of religion thrown in on the side. We want a Jesus that we can control. We want a a, a Christianity that looks like our life. It doesn't really require any change. It doesn't really require kingship. It doesn't really require submission on our part. We actually want the real, we we want the authority that comes with being our own king. With the assurances that come of following Jesus. Isn't that true? It's so true in our lives. Man, I hear it coming out of people's mouths again and again and again. I'm amazed. The kind of, the version of following Jesus that we come up with, right? The, the version that says, you know, God just wants me to be happy. And so I think I should be able to do whatever it is I want to do. I should be able to believe whatever it is I want to believe. I should be able to piece together my own version of Christianity, taking a little bit here and there and there and there, whatever it is that makes me feel safe and comfortable without actually having to follow Jesus. That's that's the kind of Christianity we, we want, right? We want to make Jesus in our own image. We want We want a king, but we want it the way we want him to look. 
We got to be able to go our own way, do our own thing, believe our own thing. We're fickle like the crowd, don't you think? So easily, and yet that's not who that's not who the king is. This king has come. This king has come, but but he requires obedience. He requires submission. He has come to be the king to rule in our hearts, to rule in our lives. Now, he's a good king. He has our best interest in mind, but he does require us to follow and us to serve and us to go with him because he is the only rightful, the only uh, enduring king, the only rightful king in our hearts and in our lives. I think in the same way, um, the same way that Jesus weeps over the people and weeps over Jerusalem, I wonder sometimes if he doesn't weep over you and me for the same reason, saying, you know what? Remember how he ends it? He said, he said if you only knew what would bring you peace, right? He's like, but there is, there is judgment coming for those who, who are saying to me, we don't want you to be our king. We don't want you to rule. He's like, it is not going where you think it's going to go. And he weeps over Jerusalem and says, if only you would recognize the time. If only you would recognize the true king that came for you. The time when God, your king, came to save you. And the the time that God, your king, came to lead you and to rule you and to welcome you into his kingdom. I wonder if sometimes... He doesn't weep over us like that. Martin Luther once said, he said, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It's one thing to say that Christ is a Savior or Christ is the Savior. It's quite another to say he's my Savior and my Lord or my King. He says the devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. The crowd of that day talks about Jesus as a king, maybe even Jesus as the king. But but you know what Jesus came to do? Jesus came to be my king. He came to be your king. Not just a king, not just an abstract out there king, but he came to rule in our hearts and lives. He came to bring salvation to you. He came to bring new life to you, right? If we would receive him as my king, as our king. Just like Jesus wept for the people of that day, I wonder if he doesn't weep for us because he knows the kind of destruction, the kind of hurt, the kind of hopelessness that comes from living our lives apart from him. He knows what it's like and it is his desire more than anything else. God's longing for you and me this Easter and every day of our lives is that we would come to him fully with hearts wide open, that we would come to know him and encounter him and embrace him as my king as our king and then learn to follow him friends he wants to be my king and yours he wants to take the rightful place of leadership in our lives he's a good god he is a good king he has your best interest in mind he cares about you deeply and greatly he loves you so much right as we'll be talking about all week this week he loves you so much that he was willing to die for you so that you could come back home to him, so that you could find and discover new life, so that you could be free, so that you could step into the life that he has for you. He is crazy about you, but make no mistake about it, he came to be your king. He came the first time as the humble king, where he came riding 
on the back of a borrowed baby donkey. He came to Jerusalem to die. He came right to bring salvation and open the doors of his kingdom to every person on the planet. He came the first time as the humble king. But the Bible also paints us a picture, if you go to the end of the story, that he will return again. And this time he will not come back as the humble king riding on the back of a donkey. He will come as the reigning king. He'll come back to take names, right? He'll come back to rule and reign, to put an end to evil once and for all. It will be no more. In fact, listen to the story. I mean, it's, it's an ironic picture as you're thinking of Jesus riding on this baby colt of a donkey, you know, kind of thing. Listen to how Revelation describes his return. See if it's a little bit different picture than that of the first Palm Sunday. Revelation 19 says, I saw, saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a great white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, represents the mercy through his sacrifice, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule over them with an iron scepter. Listen to this. On his robe <clears throat> and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does this sound like humble and meek Jesus? He is that, but does, is that what this sounds like? This sounds like a king that's coming in power. A king that's coming to reign. He's coming back as the conquering king. He's coming to rule. He's coming to bring justice. Finally, and to put an end to evil, he will wipe it out. Now, for those that have received him now, right, as the humble king, those who have received him as their king, as my king in the here and now, you have nothing to fear. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. We will be welcomed home with him. We will be recipients of his grace, and we too will be clothed in white. It's a symbol of purity because he has paid the price for our sins. For those that have put their faith and trust in Christ, we have nothing to fear. There is a, there is a happily ever after where we get to go home and be with him forever. And it's gonna be sweet. It will be good. It will be better than you can imagine. But, but we would be remiss. We would be foolish if we picture him as some sort of weak-willed Jesus that we can control or that we can push around. Because the Bible makes it abundantly clear, he's the king. His will will be done. And the most important thing in this life is that we don't miss him coming to us. That we don't miss his coming for us. But that we put our faith in him. We enter into that relationship with him. We accept his invitation to grace. One more story, and uh, I'll be done for the day. I'll kind of wrap it up. But uh, this comes from a missionary uh, called Thomas Lambie. He was a veteran missionary to, to Africa. He was going through a rough time, and uh, a friend of his told him this story, which he kind of adopted and retold over and over. But it goes like this. It says, There once lived a great nobleman whose wife was dead, and his only child was a beautiful young lady of marriageable age. The father invited all the young noblemen in the country to come for a, a whole week of entertainment at his castle. 
During this week, when the young men were in close proximity to his daughter, surely a suitable match could be made with somebody of equal rank. Great preparations were made for the festivities. A band of strolling players were hired. Minstrels were engaged. Clowns and gestures, jesters were hired. A great store of food and drink were picked out. Whole pigs were roasted along with hares and pheasants. A hundred appetizing foods were prepared in vast quantities of nut brown, including a nut brown ale and mead and wines of all kinds. The whole castle was in a bustle of preparation for the noble, uh, for the noble guests to arrive. Early on the morning of the day of the arrival of all these suitors, a loud knocking was heard at the gate of the castle, and an apparently deformed man on crutches appeared. A few crusts were unceremoniously thrust at him, and the gate slammed in his face. He refused, he refused the crust, but kept knocking. Give him a few coins, somebody, and get rid of him. But he refused and continued to knock. Go away, beggar, they shouted, or we will unleash the dogs on you. But he continued to knock. He beat upon the oaken panel with his crutches. What is it that you want? Somebody finally asked. Is not this the day appointed for guests to come and seek the nobleman's daughter? It is for this reason that I have come to beg for her hand. And he edged his way into the cobbled courtyard. What, you? The people said. And they began to laugh. Oh, come on. They started to shout to others, Oh, come and hear this poor deluded beggar. Peals of laughter uh, echoed as cooks and servants and soldiers deserted their duties to gather around and to laugh at this beggar and mock this poor fool. Meanwhile, the daughter was upstairs being adorned for her guests. She inquired of her maid what all the commotion was out in the courtyard. Between giggles, the maid said, It's a poor beggar who wants to marry you. I'll go and see him, she said. Down the winding stairs she went, through the castle, right, walking by deserted, uh, the deserted kitchen where meats were baking, out into the cobbled yard, and the crowd sort of opened to let her pass. What is it that you want? She asked the beggar. He fastened upon her an earnest look. He said this, I have seen you while I myself was still unnoticed. And I love you, and I have come to ask you if you'll marry me. Groans of laughter come from the crowd. She paused and gave him look for look. Yes, I'll marry you, she said. More shrieks of merriment from the crowd. When, he said. She said, in a year and a day. Very well, I will return, said the beggar, and he hobbled off. You're a clever girl, said somebody from the crowd. You knew exactly what to say to get rid of him. She said, I meant what I said. More laughter. Of course you didn't. <laughs> what fun. Well, the guests eventually arrive in due course, but she gave none of the suitors any encouragement. The nobleman ended up scolding her and finally uh, was actually quite cruel to his daughter. The servants taking their cue from him were the same. Gloom began to descend upon the castle even before the departure of the guests. Then ensued an unhappy year for the girl. For although she did her best to please her father, she was a good girl, he was not to be appeased. You would marry a beggar, he said, over and over. He will never come back, that's sure. She would smile gently, but even her smile would only infuriate him. A year passed, and only a day remained if the beggar were to show up. The morning passed uneventfully, then high noon. And finally, later in the day, something quite different took place. 
Distant peals of music and the rumbling of drums were heard. The sun flashed on spears and polished armor. A courier spurred to the gate uh, with the astonishing news that the king's son, the royal prince, was arriving momentarily. There was no time for preparations. The nobleman, accompanied by his daughter, had barely had time to reach the castle gate where he saw, riding between two rows of knights and squires that reached to the far horizon, the king's son. He was mounted on a magnificent white charger and was uh, clad in golden armor while his face shone like the sun. Swinging gracefully from his steed, he stood in front of the nobleman to whom he gave no recognition. He took the girl by the hand in a most endearing fashion and said, My love, I have come back for you just as I had promised. Her eyes filled with tears as she murmured, I knew you'd come. So he took her, his bride, to the royal kingdom far away. But before they, were, they left, there was time for one maiden to ask this question. How did you know that the beggar was a prince in disguise? And she said, ah, oh. she said, I looked into his eyes and I saw something there. I listened to his voice and something I heard made me know that he was indeed the son of the king. Friends, I just want to, as, as we wrap up today, I just want to say, Today we start out on Holy Week and we remember that the King has come for us. He came the first time as a beggar. He came to serve. He came to give his life away. He came with mercy and with love. And he came with, with as much graciousness as there is on the planet. He came and he gave his life for you. He came the first time to serve. The Bible makes it abundantly clear, though. He will come the second time to rule. He will come to bring those who have accepted his invitation home into his kingdom to be with him forever. And the only thing that matters in this week, the only thing that matters today, the only thing that matters in this life, to be honest, is that we are ready for that day. Is that we have received the king in this life. That we have opened hearts and lives and we have said, come King Jesus, come Savior Jesus, come and rescue me, come and be my king. Come and lead me and guide me and be my God. For those that have received his invitation like that in the here and now, there is great hope. But man, I did not want to I mean, in the same way that Jesus wept over the crowds as he was coming into Jerusalem, as he wept over the people, I don't want to be like the crowd in that day that Jesus says have, I mean, have only judgment awaiting them because they missed the coming of God to them. I don't know where you stand with God this morning. I'm not sure uh, where you're at in your relationship with the king. Maybe this God stuff is new to you. Maybe, maybe you don't know where you're at. Maybe you don't know who this guy is. But I would encourage you, friends, do whatever you have to do to check out King Jesus, to get to know him and see as you hear his voice, as you come to see him and know him more, see if he's not the son of the king that has come for you. 
Maybe some of us have, have sort of opened up our hearts. We've prayed the prayer. We've come to church. We've done all the right things. But the reality, if we're honest, the reality is he is not the king of our lives. We are living our lives as atheists, practically. We're living lives on our own. And maybe this morning, the king is calling to you and saying, it is time to turn back around to him, to open up your heart and life and say, Jesus, would you forgive me for going my own way? I want to follow you from this point forward. Friends, don't miss him. This week we'll have plenty of opportunity to worship. We'll have opportunity to marvel at his great love and his mercy. We'll remember the king that came, right, to serve and to love. But my hope is that we will respond as well with hearts submitted, with lives saying, come and be my king. Let's close in prayer. Father, that's our cry this morning. Forgive us for uh, treating your sacrifice, for, for treating even your, your kingship and your rule too lightly. Forgive us, God, for so easily and so often just going our own way. And Lord, um, this week as we remember your mercy, as we remember your grace and your great love that's poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, for the forgiveness of my sins, God, we, we just ask that you would come and cleanse us, that you would come and wash us, that you would make us new and make us clean. And God, and then teach us to follow you, teach us to live in your kingdom rule. Would you come and lead us and guide us by your spirit? Would you empower us and strengthen us to live our lives with you? May we accept your invitation, open up our hearts to your grace and your love and just cry out, we need you, Jesus. Come and have your way. Fix our eyes on you. Fix our hearts on you, God. We need you and we love you. We pray these things in the name of